This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with uh, my good friend Graham Williams. Thanks for coming in, as always. Always a pleasure to be here. we got a really cool show. We're going to be talking about wearables, and uh, this is such a growing category right now. They say by 2020, over $45 billion uh, will be spent by people around the world. In today's show, we will uh, be chatting with the folks over at MasterCard. They're building all sorts of contact payment technology into wearables, like jewelry. So you don't have to carry around your credit card or your debit card anymore, That's which heavy. I think is cool. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people are uh, concerned about security when it comes to that. You don't want to be accidentally uh, hitting that contact uh, you know, contactless payment uh, thing at the coffee shop and spending an extra 20 bucks <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, they've got answers for us. We uh, will also be talking with Nick Badminton, the futurist that's actually taking wearables to the next level, implantables. He's got an RFID chip somewhere in his body. I think it's in his hand. Well, that's kind of cool. Cool and weird, but I think I think we're looking at the future. You know, there's some companies uh, that have actually, uh, uh, you know, offered their employees, you know, to have that chip implanted in them so that they don't have to carry around key cards to open doors in offices and stuff. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that I used to forget my key card when I worked in a corporate office. So that would be great. Would you do it? I would, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get down to the point where I don't have to carry my my wallet with me anymore. My driver's license is the worst thing. There's There's a system that has my picture in it. And you need me to carry the little plastic card? Just pull me up on the computer, man. You can see it's me. You're right. We're good, right? And, you know, we've got a a really great segment. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, a couple devices that can detect uh, whether your food has peanuts in it, for example, or gluten. Wouldn't you like to have something like that? If you had gluten sensitivity, and I know so many friends that do, we go to restaurants and they just have a hard time with the menu and they're scared because a lot of times they'll say, hey, is there gluten in that sauce? And, you know, the waiter or waitress is just not quite sure. Yeah. Right? So now there's a device you can actually test that to, to triple check. That's, that's really handy as well because in instances of cross-contamination... Exactly. Where you may not, it may not actually be in the recipe, but something in the kitchen came in contact with it. I mean, it's far better than having to deal with that after the fact. That sounds like a great segment. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, as always, in the first part of the show, we talk about some of the latest tech news. And uh, I want to start off with a a name and uh, see if a lot of people out there can... uh, figure out who this is. And it's a big name because you use one of his inventions every single day, multiple times a day. Tim Berners-Lee. Sir. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, yes. Well, he is the father of the World Wide Web Mm -hmm. and all the goodness and badness that it has brought. (laughs) And that's why we're talking about him. He did an interview with the BBC uh, basically saying, we've got to stop the web's downward plunge to a dysfunctional future. So the father of the web's not angry. He's just disappointed. He's very disappointed. Uh, You know, I think it's been around for 30 years now, the World Wide Web. But he outlined three really specific uh, areas that we need to work on to make the web better. Uh, Number one, malicious activity like hacking and harassment, of course. Uh, Number two, problematic system design, such as business models that reward clickbait. I hate that stuff. I think a lot of us and do. And it's very prevalent. Yeah. And number three, unintended consequences such as aggressive or, or polarized discussions. And, you know, in this particular case, uh, he referenced the Cambridge Analytica scandal that basically, I think, influenced the U.S. election. 
Agreed. And not just that election, like other things as well. Brexit, it's turning out this was actually something that was a key factor there. Um, You know, I think we can all agree that the tone and tenor of conversation over the course of the past three or four years has absolutely gotten quite a bit worse. There's a lack of respect between people. Um, You know, there's a, a... an inherent need for people to win arguments online, that's kind of always been there. Uh, but we're kind of getting to a point now where people are maliciously and falsely stating things, uh, arguments that are unsighted and unscientific. I think the anti-vax thing is probably one of the biggest things right now. Oh, that's driving me crazy. I, I read these comments and you see people who are adamant that you know they have science and you ask them for a source and they sort they they source a, a study done by a discredited doctor a single study versus you know all of thousands the of other studies yes so it's just like this this dedication to an idea that you know my opinion is more valid than the sourced scientific facts that you have is incredibly frustrating so i can see a guy like tim berners-lee looking at it going I made this thing to make these species better. Yes. Right? And we tried to make it idiot-proof. Yeah. And all you've done is make a better idiot. But as humans, I think we're idiots. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like, we always kind of, you know, go towards the negative. Yeah. I think most of us. Yeah. And so I don't know how you combat that, but uh, good on him for bringing it up. And I think we should all be vigilant to, to help his vision become real. Well, the one thing I would say is he has something called the, con- the contract for the web. Okay. Right? It's a website out there called contractfortheweb.org. I would urge everyone to go take a look at this because as individuals and businesses, you can pledge to be better online. And I think this is actually a great choice here. The next story I want to talk about, uh, pre- presidential elections uh, coming up in 2020. Uh, the Democratic uh, field is widening as more and more uh, candidates come in to try to, uh, you know, get that Democratic nomination to take on Trump. Elizabeth Warren was one of the first out there. And one of uh, the key things on her platform is that she vows to break up the tech giants if elected in 2020. What does that mean? Well, she's looking at some of the big guys like Amazon uh, and their acquisition of Whole Foods down uh, in the U.S. and Canada, for that matter. She said she would reverse that. Also, Facebook's merger with WhatsApp and Instagram. She would break that up. And Google with Waze, the the direction app. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great idea. Like I'm looking at all of these companies and thinking, you know what, you guys are, you're not just too big to fail, you're too big to succeed at this point. They're basically not allowing innovation to happen. Yeah, there's there's a a sort of a monopolistic lock-in here that's starting to happen, you know, where it's like, we, we saw this last year when the Cambridge Analytica scandal hit, right? Everything on Facebook took a dive. If you were a marketer on Facebook, things would look really bleak for you. Interactions on Facebook dropped as, as trust dropped. Do you know where everyone went? Where? Instagram. Well, that's owned by Facebook. Owned by Facebook. Yes. So this, this illusion of choice that consumers are getting <laughs> no choice. is a serious problem. Now, I'll give you an example. Intel invents the microprocessor. Yes. Right? The American government looked at that and went, that right there is too big for one company to have. They created advanced micro devices, a competitor for Intel. And to this day, AMD has been pushing Intel along the entire time, at times taking the lead in technology and times trailing behind. But these two companies are creating innovation by making each other, you know, work to succeed. Right now, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they are creating these verticals that people can't escape. Who's competing against Google? Bing? (laughs) You know what the number two search engine in the world is? Um, YouTube. YouTube, yeah. Owned by Google. Owned by Google. Yeah. Well... Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm interested to see if any of the other Democratic uh, contenders will take on some of that as well, if, mm-hmm. they, if they agree with her or not. Yeah. 
Well, we'll we'll have to uh, find out. Again, we've got a fantastic show. Uh, it's all about wearables. And, you know, you need to listen to this because it's happening now. And more and more of us are getting into it. I mean, when we think wearables, we think about Fitbits and Apple Watch. It's, it's so much more. Uh, and there's companies that are developing all sorts of cool technologies that uh, I think can help us as a society and as humans. But also, I think we do need to be concerned about some of the implications of that. And we'll be talking about that today's program. We'll be talking with MasterCard. We'll also be talking with Nick Bass. Edmonton, the futurist who actually has an RFID chip implanted in his body and uh, devices to measure gluten sensitivity and peanut allergy uh, in foods. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here and get connected. Stay tuned. You're live with Get Connected, Mike Agarbo here in studio. Uh, let's talk wearables uh, some more. Wearables are expected to be close to a $45 billion Canadian industry by 2020. Wearables are literally everywhere now. And I think a lot of times when we think wearables, we're thinking Apple Watches, Fitbits, that type of thing. But uh, these electronic devices are, are being built into all sorts of things and, and clothing. To help understand a whole other facet, uh, we're going to look at uh, how MasterCard is uh, getting into the wearable market. We've got Suk Dev from MasterCard uh, to talk about wearables and fashion and jewelry. Thanks for joining us, Suk. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's interesting you mentioned that the wearable industry is going to grow over the years, but uh, if you really think about it today, um, a lot of people own wearable devices already. In fact, one in five adults use wearable technology. And usually it's what you just mentioned, it's a smartwatch or a fitness strap. And we at MasterCard have been working with different players around the globe on this front already. And just last year, for example, we launched Fitbit Pay and Garmin Pay with select banks um, in that wearable space. But as you can imagine, as uh, consumers live increasingly digital lives, in our studies, we have found that they expect their ability to pay reflect this always-on digital mindset. So it's only natural that uh, variable devices, as they become payments-enabled, fashion comes into play, and fashion and payment technology start to unite. And consumers can now have that seamless, well-designed pay experience every day, every, everywhere. Do you think people are wanting this? That's what we're going to see in the coming years. Yeah, do you think people are, are looking for this? With the evolution of technology, previously, the focus of the wearable space was really on, you know, getting the basics right, the battery life, the, uh, the form factor, all of that. I think we're beyond those hurdles now. And uh, as consumers, like I mentioned, want to be able to express themselves uh, in a more digital manner, wearable is uh, what they think of when they think of how can I digitally express myself in the payment space. And this is where devices like uh, a variable ring that is smart and you can make payments using it or a, or a necklace come into place. Yeah, I actually saw that uh, ring, uh, I think back last year, uh, one of your MasterCard folks was uh, sporting it. I was, I was wondering how I could steal that off him because I thought that was so cool. You could basically take that and, and use it at, uh, you know, those tap machines uh, in, in all the stores instead of having to drag your, uh, your, your debit or, uh, or MasterCard out. That's exactly it. So um, it's true that you can use that ring to make contactless payments anywhere contactless is accepted. Um, and the interesting thing about how we build that technology is that it's very reusable. 
Um, and what I mean by that is it's the same technology that powers that ring is what's powering an Apple Pay or your Fitbit Pay that I just mentioned. So if your bank is looking to enable any of these experiences, they kind of have to build once and then enable all these incremental uh, experiences that can be done on top of that initial build. Well, it is interesting. Uh, I know a lot of people, uh, they have, uh, you know, Apple Watches, uh, and I know, you know, their Samsung has their wearables as well that, that do have uh, MasterCard Pay built into them. But I, I imagine there's a lot of people out there that, you know, like kind of the contactless, contactless pay, uh, but don't always want to wear a smartwatch. They want something a little more elegant or, or simpler. Of course. It's always, it looks better when you're buying a, a nice handbag and all you do is a tap with your ring. And, and how do you guys get in, involved uh, with this? Do you partner with uh, jewelry designers, uh, or do you, you know, come up with your own designs? How does that all come about? It is through partnerships. Um, in fact, we're working with several partners globally, helping them understand how payment technology can work for their um, designs and their form factors. And uh, that's, I think, a key role that we play in this ecosystem is making sure that fashion designers understand how they can work with technology providers like us to enable these experiences. And what what can we expect from the future of wearables? You know, we've kind of got an idea of what uh, is happening now. We've got the, the watches and Fitbands. Uh, you know, we're starting to see some of these things from you, like, you know, the rings and, and bracelets. Where, where can it go from here? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, as we see... From the first wave of this was all fitness related as we covered in our conversation and now we're heading towards fashion and those more everyday design options. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes and although I don't have a crystal ball, what I can tell you is that in our recent uh, digital payment study that we just did in partnership with Prime, we looked at over 3 million public social media posts and what we were able to find is that people are increasingly positive towards new payment technologies thanks to, obviously, the speed, the efficiency, and the ease of use they bring. And also, they they wanted the way they pay to reflect their always-on digital lifestyle. So it's very interesting um, to see how the space will evolve over time. Uh, and, you know, you, you obviously look into this and, and do studies. How are people feeling about, you know, the overall security and, and privacy around some of these, these solutions? Uh, that's a good point to hit on. So... Of course, as we looked at all this data, uh, security and data privacy were topics that did uh, rise to the top. So, in fact, just looking at some numbers here, when we did the research, we found that data privacy mentions were up about 20% compared to when we did the study in 2017. And biometrics was another key topic that almost 20 million um, audience members actually talked about. Other technologies that were mentioned within that security space were tokenization, uh, and all of this is to be expected as, you know, everyday consumers are waking up, and there's a lot of talk of data breaches, and uh, privacy is definitely top of mind. Uh, just explain, uh, you know, a layman's term of what tokenization means to the listeners. Oh, for sure. So, uh, tokenization is the idea that you can take your 16-digit credit card number and replace it with a digital identifier called a token. So, the idea is that when you go shop at a merchant, you are not, and this is obviously online, so when you're shopping at an online merchant, you are not sharing your 16-digit credentials anymore. Instead, a token is being used to make the transaction. So, it's protecting you uh, by not sharing that sensitive credential information and instead using a digital identifier. The transaction still goes through, so you're, so you're all good, but it's... Uh, 
it's more secure. What excites you the most about all this wearable technology? That's a great question. I think as a technologist, uh, what I'm most excited about is the idea that we've built the foundation and it's one engine that we have built and it can support very many multiple use cases. So whether it's a ring, whether it's a, it's a phone, whether it's any other form factor, we can really enable device commerce for any device, you name it. As long as you can pick it up and tap it on a terminal, we can enable it for contactless. And one last question, because I know the listeners uh, will be asking me this. Um, you know, if you've got a ring or a bracelet that now has your, your MasterCard built into it, I know a lot of them, and I've heard this, they're worried that they're just going to be setting off payments all over the place, you know, as they're walking by places. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we all want seamless, but we, of course, want to make sure that there's a balance with security and control. So what we do, actually, we've controls built into it. So first of all, the tokenization piece that I mentioned is what's being used to enable this contactless payment. So at any time you program your credentials into a device like that, it's not saving your 16-digit card numbers. It's a token that's being saved, so you're protected in that regard. And when it pertains to making payments and forgetting where you're tapping or um, touching terminals, we can set up controls so that if you ever were to take off that um wearable device that you're wearing, it will ask you to enter a PIN or to authenticate using biometrics. Um, it can even use uh, your heartbeat as an authentication measure. So all of those controls are built in and the designer, whoever is designing the experience, can select from the available options. I love that. So my heartbeat can be my password. Indeed. We're talking with Suk Dev over at MasterCard about uh, the future of wearables and payment technology. Is there a place that people can find out more information about this, Suk? Definitely. Um, people can find more information on MasterCard.ca. Look under the consumer section. Very cool. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. When we come back from the break, still a lot more to talk about here on the show about uh, wearables. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs, here on the Chorus Radio Network, back after this. Yeah. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. We're talking about wearables. What's the next level of wearables? We're talking uh, cyborg, cybernetics, implants. We've uh, got our futurist here. His name is Nick Badminton. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Nick, uh, we talk a lot about wearables on our show. Uh, implants are the next level, and you actually have an implant. Can you tell the listeners uh, what it is and how it works. Yeah, so about four years ago, I was running a conference. I had a good friend of mine, Emil Grafstra, from a company called DangerousThings.com, come up to the conference and show us uh, what it was like to get uh, an RFID chip implanted in in my hand. And what we did was we, we put it in there, we programmed it, and we, we demonstrated what that could do. And and it, it, it was hugely interesting for, for me to think about how we can augment the human body with, with actual technology and what that could mean for society. So when you talk about an RFID chip, how big is this thing and did it hurt? <laughs> So it's, it's just like getting your ears pierced, so it didn't really hurt that much. It's, it's the size of two grains of rice. It lives in my hand. It's moved around a little bit, and now it's sort of settled in one place. It, it doesn't hurt. It's just there. I can reprogram it with a smartphone. So it, right now it's got a URL to a website in it that I did for a demonstration. I can put in a code for an RFID door lock. Uh, you know, I can use it to control anything that has RFID readers attached to it. And so what things have you been controlling? Yeah, so really, very simply, uh, 
password readers uh, for my computer, and I've actually had uh, I've lived in apartments that have had RFID uh, door locks. So I never lose keys because I never lose my hand. I hold my hand up to the door. Um, it whizzes, opens, let, lets me in, and um, yeah, and and life goes on as normal. How how does the power work in that? Does it ever run out of power? Yeah, so it's completely passive. So it just gets read by something do- that does have power. So a door lock would have batteries that could read it. Uh, a smartphone would have battery power to read it as well. So it, it doesn't need power. It doesn't need recharging. It's just there. It's passive and just works when it's called upon. This is kind of the same technology you'd find in like a, a Nexus ID card, for example. Yeah, absolutely. You'd find it in Nexus ID card, uh, any kind of travel card. It's kind of the same technology that you, you put in a cat and dog for tracking on them as well. But it's the human version and, and certified um, as safe for humans. So, so yeah, it's exactly the same kind of technology. Some people have experimented trying to use it as credit cards and use it as entry systems for, for, for you know, their buildings, their, their apartment buildings that they live in. It's slightly difficult, different um, technology. This is more of an open platform. A lot of those are closed platforms. Interestingly enough, uh, if you're using a card or a key fob to get into your building, the people that build that security system make all the money off of the fobs and nothing on the system itself. So they lock it down and they don't have it as an open platform to use with technologies like I've got in my hand. Okay, so technology, as we all know, changes all the time. Like, how good is that RFID chip going to be? Like, is it going to ever get out of date? Yeah. And then what happens? RFID's been used uh, for years already um, in everything from warehouse tracking, in retail, and, and beyond. And I think it's going to be a standard for, for many years, you know, probably 20 or 30 years. You know, will it be superseded, potentially? What would happen at that point? Well, if, if I decide to, I can choose to remove this. How do you remove that? Half a bottle of whiskey and a scalpel. <laughs> Your friend doing it or you? <laughs> so I've known people that have done it themselves. I've known, uh, you know, body modders. I uh, get a friend to do it. Um, typically, it's uh, it's professional body modification artists, uh, piercers. Uh, sometimes, if you've got a friend that's a surgeon, or you actually go in and have a proper medical procedure to get it removed, that's another way of doing it as well. Some people might think it's crazy to do this kind of thing to put an implant in you know there's like privacy and security issues and just the whole idea of modding the human body like what do you say to that some people might say that it's crazy to carry around a mobile device that tracks exactly where you are um harvests your data sells it to advertisers where where are these things yeah well this is it it. (laughs) interestingly enough six billion people in the world are going to be using smartphones by 2020 I've got something that's passive that doesn't really do anything from a tracking, targeting perspective. It's it's infinitely safer and, and more secure than the technology that, that's in everyone's pockets today. So I don't see there being a problem. Do you know many people that have done this? Yeah, I, I know a few people. We're probably into, you know, probably ten to 20,000 people globally that have done that's, this now. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. There, there are some companies in places like uh, Sweden that have actually offered it to all their employees so they can use it to enter the building, whatever. And, and people have stepped forward. There's a lot of people in military who've got this, people that work in security. I, I've put it in people that work in government. James Bond? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> in, in the intelligence service, you know, the storing and the transfer of data is, is something that they do do. This doesn't store a lot of data, but it might actually contain passcodes that you don't need to know, and you're literally the transporter of some information cross-border. What's the future of this? The future of implantables is um, powered implantables. So we've already got them today with things like pacemakers, but imagine if you've got a tracking device that can help you um, keep, keep tabs on people 
they're either criminals, people that have got dementia that go walk about or kids. whatever. Uh, you, you wouldn't really go there from an ethical perspective with kids. I'm sure uh, there's certain countries around the world where they've they've certainly looked at that as an application. I wouldn't say that Canada or the US would be places that you'd do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if you want to track something um, with with battery with with battery powered devices that can go in the gut in the hands wherever in the body that could have a really interesting application it's also incredibly dangerous um from uh being hacked perspective because a lot of these things still need strong passwords strong protocols and you know even people uh, have actually had their uh, their pacemakers protected from being attacked by mobile devices as well dick cheney being one of them we're talking with Nick Badminton, futurists about implantables, the uh, the future of wearables. Taking that one step further, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. When we come back from the break, if you've got a peanut allergy or a gluten sensitivity, we've got a device that can test for both of those in foods. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. Do you have a peanut allergy or are you sensitive to gluten well you know how difficult it is to uh, choose the right foods especially when you're going out to restaurants i've got our uh, tech expert john beeler here in the studio with me to talk about some little tech items that just might make your life a little bit easier john thanks for coming in no problem uh what are we looking at here there's two different devices depending what kind of uh, allergy or sensitivity you have yeah basically these are small portable uh devices that are meant to basically give you a little lab in your pocket uh so when you're out at the restaurant and you know uh perhaps the wait staff doesn't quite know exactly everything in it or you're concerned that it might have been cross-contaminated with something um you can take a little sample of that food you put it into a one-time use capsule and you plug it into this little device uh, made by NEMA and it will actually in about five minutes give you an analysis of that food particle or item and tell you if it's good or not depending on your allergy so this is interesting so this uh it's made by NEMA uh this uh, the main device that you can actually take with you and keep in your pockets quite small it's kind of shaped like a triangle uh, and like you said, you've got the little uh, capsules, and you've got to buy these. You can only use them once. That's right. You buy like a, they come in a box of twelve, typically. Uh, so you know, you know, generally people with celiac disease uh, and are gluten sensitive, they're not eating out all the time, anyways. Yeah. So they're probably not using them all the time. Um, but you know, if you do want to go out to that family gathering or that big birthday dinner or something like that, you take this little device, and you know, in five minutes, you'll know if it's okay to eat whatever is put in front of you. Yeah, do you trust Uncle Joe to tell you whether there's peanuts in that or, or not? <laughs> right, and and you, who also knows sometimes uh, different things come from different manufacturers, and it may not be fully disclosed. So you know that person that's providing the food may not have all the answers. So this gives you a much more peace of mind. Um, I will mention though that apparently it's not FDA approved as as a medical device, uh, but this is really meant to give you an early warning if you know uh, th- there's going to be a problem. Uh, you might want to steer clear of that dish. Well, it's definitely better than nothing, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so th- this is quite interesting. So these are actually separate devices. If you've got a peanut allergy, they've got one specific for that. If you've got the gluten sensitivity, there's a separate uh, NEMA uh, tester for that uh, as as well. Uh, and this works through your smartphone essentially as well through That's the right. app. Yeah. And does, do you, works on iPhone and Android? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, available on, on both stores, and um, the little device that you actually plug these capsules into actually has a battery in it, so you don't actually have to plug it in or anything like that, um, and it lasts for quite a while. Uh, 
so you can go out for a number of meals and not have to worry about charging this thing. But it has a micro USB, so it's easy to plug into into any wall outlet. Kind of looks, looks like, like a mini inhaler. Yeah. Yeah. Or a really small ink cartridge for a printer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, pretty simple to use, though. Like, there's not much to it. As long as you've got the app installed uh, and you can stick food in this little capsule and stick the capsule in the unit, uh, again, which I think anyone could do, uh, you're pretty well good to go on, on this. Yeah, it's a, it's a small little uh, space. You put um, your your food particle into it, and then as you screw the lid on, it actually grinds it up so that it actually oh, can... Okay. It can uh, Vaporize or do whatever it does inside this little device, and then you press it in there, and you just wait about five minutes, and then you get a response back on your phone. Well, it's so interesting. We're seeing a lot more of these types of uh, technology, you know, when it comes to, to health and uh, preventative, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, preventing you from going into anaphylactic shock, essentially. Yeah. So, um, you know, you've been following tech for a long time. This is kind of an exciting time to to be alive. Well, and I mean, how many tech items have we come across that can actually save your life? You know, uh, going to a restaurant and eating something that could actually put you in the hospital, um, it's probably worth whatever this costs to you if that's important to you. Yeah, so these do go for a few hundred dollars. But, um, you know, essentially, if you do have that allergy or sensitivity, uh, that's, you know, money well spent. Absolutely. We're talking with John Beeler, tech expert, uh, about uh, a couple cool little gadgets from NEMA. They uh, detect uh, different types of... uh, uh, contents in the food that you would be eating. There's one for uh, peanut uh, sensitivity or uh, people that are allergic to peanuts, sorry, and one for uh, gluten as well. I know there's a lot of people out there with celiac disease and some people that just don't want to have a lot of gluten in their diet as well. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not just to prevent you know, uh, a life-saving emergency. Uh, it's also to, to sort of get a better idea of what's what you're actually consuming. Yeah, so like you said, uh, I think this is important to state, uh, not FDA approved down in the U.S., which, you know, usually is a good seal of approval for these types of devices. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't make a life or death decision on, on using something like this. But again, if you're out in a restaurant and you just want to confirm or double check that there hasn't been any cross-contamination, this is going to give you that extra uh, bit of peace of mind. Absolutely. John Beeler uh, talking all about the NEMA devices to detect uh, peanuts uh, and gluten. So, John, while I have you here, uh, I noticed uh, <laughs> you've got a couple things on the desk here in the office. Uh, a pair of Google Glass glasses uh, and some spectacles. And uh, I'm interested to talk to you about these. Uh, you know, the Google Glass um, was something that Google came out with a number of years ago. Uh, I guess they discontinued them for like consumer use more. So I know they're getting into the whole enterprise space uh, for business and stuff like that. And then you've got these uh, spectacles, uh, the Snapchat ones that are like sunglasses that have a camera built in. That's right. So why do you have all these weirdo glasses? Well, I mean, I'm a photographer, yeah. and I'm always looking for more creative ways of capturing whatever I'm doing. And I was attracted to Google Glass because a number of because of a number of reasons. One, you know, the augmented reality of having a little pop up display, um, but also being able to uh, wear a camera in places that you wouldn't even maybe even want to take a GoPro. Um, 
the the best use case I had for them was I was rock climbing in Nevada, and if you've ever rock climbed, it's you know it's a very dirty, grimy thing, and you don't have a lot of extra space because you're you know you're hanging off the side of a cliff. And these were perfect for me to be able to capture everything. They didn't get in the way of my helmet or my ropes or anything like that. And I was also able to take pictures and literally post to Facebook while I was rock climbing, which was kind of cool too. <laughs> um, but I mean, as as we found out with Google Glass, they had some issues. I think mostly around the social impact of wearing a camera on your face. Yeah. Um, and that was also one of the things that really um, made it difficult for consumers to to want to buy Google Glass. Around the same time, though, Snapchat was growing in popularity, and they made a dedicated pair of glasses that had a camera in it as well. So I got those because I was, again, interested in – Using a camera in a system that doesn't necessarily look like you're wearing a GoPro on your head or carrying an SLR, that type of thing. And, you know, they're both really interesting devices. Um, the Snapchat ones were a lot cheaper than the Google Glass. And um, the, the Do you find they're more accepted, though, than the Google Glass? Because they look more like sunglasses? Like, the Google Glass looks like you're from Star Trek. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, and, and definitely, I wore them for six months. And... Uh, you definitely get a lot of looks, a lot of curiosity. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the time, it was still, you know, people knew what they were. And so it was very uh, uh, interesting to talk to people about what they were. And I was more interested in it from the camera perspective, but also from the social impact. But the Snapchat ones, people knew right away because they were in Snapchat. And Spectacles, you know, it's a neat gadget the way they've done it. They've um, they've, they've got a, a battery built into the case so when you put them away they're charging kind of like airpods and um the problem is though is they're not really good sunglasses (laughs) (laughs) the the original ones weren't even polarized so okay so they didn't actually help for anything but again i i wore them uh zip lining in hawaii and it was perfect for that um because they're out of the way and let me capture you know 30 second or 60 second clip of something that you wouldn't want to hold your phone up for Talking with our uh, good friend, our tech expert, John Beeler, uh, again, uh, all about wearables. When we come back from the break, it's skills time. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. It's Mike and Graham here. It's that time of the show where we talk about skills, uh, skills uh, for your Amazon Alexa Echo speaker mm-hmm. to take it to another level. Yes. What do we got? So do you know much about lucid dreaming? <laughs> of course you would bring this up. Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah, so the idea here is sort of that space between awake and asleep where you're dreaming, but you know you're dreaming. Yes. And you can kind of take control of it. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's cool when it happens. Yeah. I've, I've actually had a recurring dream since I was, I was a kid where I can fly. And when I realize I can do this, I can actually kind of take control for a couple minutes. Then the alarm goes off and you're like, why did this happen? Right. Uh, so it's really neat. So there's actually an Alexa skill that plays something called binaural beats. And so basically these these are sounds that are designed for a stereo experience to try to paint a soundscape. And the idea here is that this will encourage lucid dreaming. Really? Yeah. So the skill is called Sleep Lucid Dreaming Binaural Beats. They were really stretched for the name on that one. Uh, but you can install this skill on your uh, Echo units or your Echo, your Alexa-compatible speakers. Okay. Um, so I can play this back through my Sonos system, which is quite cool because you can get that sort of nice pervasive sound in your house um, and, and basically encourage lucid dreaming and basically helping you walk that thin tightrope between sleep and awake. What's the name of it again? It's called Sleep Lucid Dreaming Binaural Beats. <laughs> 
no one's going to remember that. <laughs> if you type in lucid dreaming into your Alexa app, yes. it's the first thing that pops up. And that's what you got to do to get these skills on your Amazon uh, uh, Echo device that has the Alexa voice assistant. Um, you have to go to the app, and that's where you can search literally tens of thousands of different skills, like tens of thousands of things mm-hmm. that that speaker can do. Most people I know just use it as a timer and to play some music. <laughs> And so it can do so much more. I mean, it's super handy in the kitchen, don't get me wrong. But when you can do cool stuff like this, it's a great way to extend the functionality of that device. I love it. Yeah. Well, that's uh, all we have for the show. Uh, If you like our show, we also uh, put it up as a podcast uh, along with our sister show, The App Show. And you got to tune into that uh, tomorrow uh, morning. It's uh, 10 a.m. here on CKNW 980. It goes for an hour. We talk about all the latest and greatest apps and app stories. We'll also be talking uh, tomorrow about... The proposed cell phone ban in schools in Ontario. Doug Ford's at it again. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be chatting about that with Shruti Shakar from Mobile Syrup. Uh, get her thoughts on if that's a good thing or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcasts are available on all the uh, podcast places like iTunes and Spotify, so check it out. This is Mike and Graham logging off for Get Connected. We will see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.